You're listening to the pulpit ministry of North Life Baptist Church with Pastor Harley Snowd. At North Life Baptist Church, our mission is to encourage each person to take the steps of loving God, growing together, and serving others. If you would like more information about our church, please visit our website at www.northlife.church. Now, stay tuned for today's message. John chapter 3, good to see you tonight. Welcome to our wellness weekend. Good to have our regulars, well, several guests with us. We're honored you're here and trust that we can be an encouragement to you this evening and tomorrow. First John chapter 3, we're going to begin in verse 14 in just a moment. Uh, before we do that, just a couple of things of note for the weekend. So we have our service tonight and then I'm competing obviously with dinner and so I'm well aware of that. So um, I will shorten it to less than an hour. That's my plan tonight. And uh, some of you will probably mutiny if I go over that. Uh, And then uh, secondly, uh, so that's kind of our schedule tonight. And we have our teen fundraiser for our church family. If you're a guest, we didn't invite you. So you can then bid on an auction for desserts. But uh, our teens are raising some money for camp. So I invite you to stick around for that as well. And then tomorrow, our schedule will be as follows. So at 9 a.m., we will have here in the auditorium kind of a Q&A discussion talking about how to help others who are dealing with guilt in dysfunctional ways. Um, So ways that you can advocate, ways that you can come alongside those that are dealing with uh, guilt or even other things that they're dealing with um, as it relates to emotional and mental health and wellness. And so we'll give you some practical things tomorrow. Because that's so direct and delicate, we will have our kids out. So we'll be in. We're going to do kind of a hymn sing. We won't have uh, lyrics. on. You remember that? We used to sing off of sheet music. So we'll have little uh, booklets for you in the morning. We'll sing some hymns just about our guilt being gone, some of those old classics. So we'll do that to start our 9 a.m. slot. And then we'll dismiss the kiddos, uh, sixth grade and down. And uh, Miss Brandy will be taking the lead on that. Um, and then at 1030 uh, will be our final service for the day um, tomorrow. And so I invite you to be with us tomorrow morning at 9 as well as 1030. Um, secondly, I wanted to say this. Um, if there's something that God jars your heart or mind about this weekend... Can I encourage you tonight and tomorrow, we usually have an usher at both of our main exits, the one that goes to the central lobby and the north lobby. Um, and if, you, if there's something we can pray for you about or you just want me to be aware of, um, in the pew pocket in front of you is a connection card. On the back, it gives you the option to say just for leadership only. And if you want to say just for Pastor Snowd or whatever, um, feel free to designate it in that way. But I'd be honored to pray with you about something you're dealing with in this area or this theme this weekend or somebody that's on your heart. Um, So I hope you'll take advantage of that way to communicate with me and our church. We'd love to be a blessing and help to you. Um, And then the last thing I wanted to say is just to kind of encourage you, um, I just want to thank you for your partnership and not just what we're doing here as it relates to Wellness Weekends, but out of here. And uh, kind of the genesis of Inspire Counseling Ministry was We've been doing, this is our fifth, if I did my math right, we call them mental health for a few uh, weekends, but we've done this now. This is our fifth year doing this. And uh, a couple years ago, I had some pastors starting to ask, hey, have you ever thought about doing that out of your church? And so some of the new themes, even stuff we're going to study this weekend, are new studies and sessions that I've developed that I'm sure we'll use in years to come in other churches. So I appreciate your partnership and all that God's doing through our church. All right, 1 John chapter 3 tonight, we're going to be looking at, uh, you should have in your bolt in front of you an outline. I think the heading is wrong. 
Um, I'll take the blame for that um, as the leader. That's my number one job as the pastor. I'm the scapegoat. But uh, at the top, it says Sunday uh, a.m., I think, or it's not marked right, but it should be Saturday evening, Saturday p.m. The first one there in the middle of your bulletin is for tonight, unresolved guilt with others. 1 John chapter 3, let's look, if you will, at verse 14. We'll look at a couple other verses around these verses we'll begin with. The Bible says, We know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer, and ye know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. Notice now verse 16, key verse tonight. Hereby perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. And so we're looking at tonight, first of all, unresolved guilt between us and other people. Whether we've wronged them, whether they've wronged us, probably in most relationships, it's a two-way street, right? And as we're going to talk about tonight, how to offload that, how to navigate that, how to deal with that um, in areas that God gives us clarity through his word. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word tonight. Thank you for this good gathering, Lord, the worship that we've entered into, um, our teens and just um, their gifting and their willingness to serve as well. Thank you for how you spoke to my heart through each song and each moment, each prayer uh, time that we've already enjoyed together. And fathers, we now come to your word. We pray that you would help us to um, just be honest, Lord, with you where um, much of the emotional distress and challenges in our lives is the result of unresolved guilt. Lord, we're not in any way espousing or declaring today in a 100% way that everything that's wrong in our lives is because we have guilt. But Lord, there is probably some area, some corner or crevice of our heart, some horizontal or vertical component of our relationships. The Father is greatly hindering um, your joy and your peace and your healing being a part more fully of our lives. And I pray that you would confront us tonight, you would challenge us, and you would convince us you are trustworthy and that we can bring into the light of your gospel and your grace our worst moments, as well as the moments of others that have greatly wounded and hindered us. Pray, Father, that you would move and work in this weekend, begin tonight. Bless the balance of this evening to your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, my son Ian and I have a debate going about who is the goat. Does anybody know of this debate going on? Um, in fact, it went up a notch this week uh, between if Michael Jordan is the greatest of all time in professional basketball or if it is for the ignorant young guys in the room, they think it's LeBron, okay? Um, I'm just kidding, Ian, kind of. But anyway, um, so this past week, LeBron is now the all-time leading scorer in NBA history. And uh, my son just kind of was gloating as I'm sitting there um, the next morning, catching up on what had happened the night before. And uh, I saw this picture uh, contrasting the era that I grew up in watching professional basketball versus what happened just um, last night. So here, and I want to see if you can catch it before I give you a clue. Uh, well, I guess he says it in the middle of the graphic here. So if you look at the top um, picture, this would be Michael Jordan. This is the last shot he made to win um, his sixth, uh, sixth uh, NBA championship against the Utah Jazz, he made that shot. Remember that crossover or something? It was an offensive foul, and he makes the jumper at the free throw line, extended just a bit. Um, and you notice that everybody's watching it with their eyes. I, I didn't see it live. I didn't stay up, but uh, my sons and my wife did. For some reason, she was struggling to sleep that night. She claims not to like basketball, but she was up for this moment. 
But LeBron James hit a, actually a shot not too far removed from where uh, I was talking about with MJ. But notice everybody in the crowd, if you can see it or not, it's a little hard with the lighting maybe and the size of the graphic, everybody has their phone out to capture the moment. We've gotten so used to, haven't we, um, how connected we are to others. And can I just say to you now as we begin, I don't know if there's ever been a period in human history, you, you, you challenge my thinking on this if you can think of one, if there's ever been a moment in human history where our individual existence has been more defined by others, defined by what others think and feel and what we want them to see as we record something for the benefit of not just us, but for others. And this is not just in the glorious, great breakthroughs of life. It is also for often the low points of life that often others and our relationship with them in those moments uh, affects us in a very deep uh, core level. And so kind of this thought as we begin tonight, if we're not careful, we are in an unhealthy place by focusing upon the unresolved issues of others instead of how we are mishandling our reactionary emotions and thoughts toward them. And somebody said this the other day. This is fascinating to me. Somebody was talking about David. And we'll talk about a book I'll recommend at the end of our session tonight that I think will maybe steer us in this direction. But somebody said this. When Nathan confronted him, this is David, remember? He commits adultery. He kills her husband, tries to hide everything, to hide his guilt. When Nathan confronted him, David did not say, what about Saul? Instead, we got Psalm 51. And so may I submit to you tonight, David was wronged deeply by Saul, but he also had things in his own life that needed to be addressed. And what I love about David is he didn't point the finger at others with all the victimization that he had suffered from. He let God work in his own heart, and it brought into his life a fresh sense of wellness, not just physically, but emotionally and spiritually before the Lord. Now, in our text tonight, we're talking primarily about the relationship between us and other believers. And we'll bring this to application with unbelievers in a moment as well. But when you read brother, okay, so we just read in verse, we love the brethren, whoso hates his brother. When you read those descriptions, brother, brethren, brother, brethren, can I just remind you, every one of those people that he's referencing in 1 John chapter 3 are flawed brothers and brethren. We're to love them, we're not to hate them, we're to do right by them, not because they're perfect, but because God has worked in our heart and God has challenged us to grow in our relationship with him and with others. So the question tonight is this, in a day of doing right only by those who do right by us, that kind of a mindset, how do we in contrast lean into Christ-honoring relationship toward even those who have wronged us? All right, so let's talk about tonight the following couple of concepts. So those who process guilt proactively, and we're talking about in relation with others, do so with a two-part commitment. So we're going to talk about two commitments that we ought to be committed to, no matter what others do to us or what maybe we've done to others uh, that can help us uh, in this area tonight. Number one, first of all, let's talk about, first of all, the commitment that we must possess intrinsically before God to love others, commitment in our love. Just a week ago Friday, so this would be, I think, a week ago yesterday, um, Maybe this has been two weeks ago now, but the wind chill on the summit of New Hampshire's Mount Washington, did you see this? Dipped to negative 108 degrees Fahrenheit. And the best that meteorologists and Scientologists, not Scientologists, scientists, okay? <laughs> That's a whole nother direction we could go tonight. 
Um, the, they, as far as they can ascertain, it's the coldest recorded uh, temperature ever in North America, 108 degrees below. I think maybe the United States, not Canada, including that, but it's the coldest um, that it's ever been in the, at least the history of the United States. Do you feel that we live in a very cold day? Um, not just out there, but often, if we're not careful, in here, in the homes represented in this room, the teen and parent relationships and the parent and teen relationships. And all of us, if we're not careful, the coolness has crept into our relationship with others. And I just want to say this this evening to encourage you that there's hope. We are no more dysfunctional or sinful toward each other than we've ever been. Um, read in history, um, uh, as, as Caesars killed their mothers and their brothers and we, we don't do any worse to each other than we've ever done since the fall of mankind. Here's the problem, though. We've lost the ability as believers to, in a healthy way, process that wrong toward each other. That's our issue. It's not all the terrible things we're doing that we've never thought of before. It's the fact that we're not able to handle the fallout of this predictable pattern of fallen people relating to each other in a dysfunctional way. That tonight gives me hope, and it ought to give you hope as well, that there is a way back, there is a way forward with all the wrong that we've shared between us, um, there's an opportunity. In fact, I would say this, in fact, the wrong between us gives us unique opportunities to love each other like God loves us, that if we always did right by each other, I don't know if I could love you the way God loves me. And so it's a privilege, it's an opportunity to seize the tensions in our relationships and to invest into them love. So let's talk about a couple things as it relates to this commitment to love that we need, even when others are guilty toward us or when we've failed others around us, this is a commitment to maintain. Number one, jot this down, we need to love without hate. So he first deals with the negative side of this love. Go, if you would, to verse 12, and he uses the example of Cain. So in verse 11, he says, since the beginning, we've had this command, we're to love one another. Now he sets in sharp contrast to that command, the negative, this is what not to do. Not as Cain, who was of that wicked one and slew his brother and wherefore slew he him because his own works were evil and his brother's righteous. Love without hate. The first thing we have to deal with to not love, to not offer to others hate is we must deal with a hateful conscience. We're going to talk about guilt tomorrow as well. But first of all, we have to get free of a hateful conscience. And so here we have John using on this operation of the Holy Spirit the example of Cain who hated his brother because he knew he had failed. He had fallen short. He had not done what God had asked. He had not offered the right sacrifice. He was rejected and Abel was received. Abel's sacrifice was accepted. And so here, notice he says he was of that evil one. This is satanic to lash out against another because of the wrong that we have done before God. Verse 13, marvel not, my brethren, if the world hate you. And so here's this principle of why the world hates us and why wicked people hate those who are trying and in Christ are standing in righteousness. It's because our, our, our lives and our status is a reminder of how far, far short uh, this world falls. It's as foolish for the world to hate us and lash out at us who know Christ as if you drew a squiggly line, put a ruler up against it, and got mad at the ruler. The standard 
Um, and so it's our own when that's us. And when we then lash out at others because of the, 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 the guiltiness of our conscience, we know we've fallen short. And so instead of the spotlight being on us, we lash out at others around us. Um, my boys were just in a game. They probably don't want to talk about the game. We lost Brother Nick and Pastor Nathan or their coaches um, earlier this week, Thursday. The end of the game, we were down by, I don't know, 15 or whatever, um, the school. And so what do you do at the end of the game if you're down and there's only a minute or two left? You start doing what? Fouling. Fouling. Um, someone was talking about this as it relates to um, the enemies of Christ. And they said this, don't be surprised when you're being fouled by the enemy. It's because they're a part of the losing team, right? And so the, the, the hatred and the vitriol that often is directed our way has nothing to do with us and them. It's, it's the guilty conscience that Christ provides answers and hope and healing from. And one of the things I've noticed in our own lives, and this would be to us as believers, is what we tend to do is to kind of dull the guiltiness that we sense in us of where we've fallen short as we find someone else it's just a little worse, a little worse off than us, right? And we use that comparison to numb, to tranquilize our own conscience that's fallen short of God. And so we put someone else down, gives us this momentary relief or pleasure from this guiltiness that we know we have uh, before God. The problem is when we do that, usually we gossip, right? Then that's additional sin. And we just compound the issue. Uh, with this hateful conscience that we have toward others. May I just say this tonight, we'll move on. Any hateful tension between two human beings typically has its roots primarily in a stuck-in-guilt conscience before God. And until you and I are right with God, we can't be right with each other, right? And so the place for you to start and for me to start is say, God, search my heart, try me. See if there be any wicked way in me. And when my conscience is clean by his grace and for his glory, now I can move toward others who've wronged me. And so we have to eliminate this hate and move toward love by dealing with the conscience. All right, verse 14. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. Number two, hateful exposure. So we have to deal with our conscience and where it makes us be hateful toward others. Number two, we have to deal with where we're exposed for who we truly are and the hatred that often oozes out toward others. And so God exposes us. He, he reveals who we truly are. And as he does so, are we going to lash out at others or submit to the searchlight of his spirit and his word? Um, it's amazing when a person gets saved how the attitude that we have toward other believers changes. Can you remember that? Especially if you were an adult when you received Christ. You used to think Christians were, I don't know, you fill in the blank, whatever word that probably, uh, maybe even a word that you can't use now as a believer, but you, you thought ill of them. You, you dismissed them. You marginalized them. You even maybe mocked them. And then once God got in your heart and in your life, there's, there's a connection, there's a love, there's a, there's a rapport there between you and the brethren. Often, if we're not careful, we view love and hate as involuntary responses. You made me hate you. You made me love you. Instead of there's a voluntary choice of the will to love or to hate for which we are responsible. Verse 15, whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer. You know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. And so it's possible for us to hate. It's possible for us in our hearts at least uh, to be guilty of murder. In Matthew chapter 5, remember Christ said, you've heard don't kill. 
I say unto you, if you look with hate, if you're angry with your brother, uh, and so anger and hate is really just murder in the embryo stage. It, it can fully blow into that at any moment, and so we must guard against this hate. Somebody said this as it relates to forgiveness. The essence of forgiveness is absorbing pain instead of giving it. The essence of forgiveness is absorbing pain instead of giving it. And so may we be willing to absorb instead of lash out and cause hate to others around us. This non-hate response, just to be clear this evening, does not mean that we ignore wrongdoing. We don't sweep it under the rug. But it does mean that their wrong toward us never justifies our own hate or bitterness toward them. Right? So we need God's help to soothe and steady us where we tend to move toward hate. All right, now let's talk about the positive. Go to verse 16. I love this transition here. Hereby perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Number two, love with compassion. So we love without hate. Number two, we love with compassion. Um, hopefully this isn't true tonight, at least in this moment, but if any of you had some tension in your marriage at some point that affects a lot of things, um, especially maybe dinner, uh, guys, have you ever talked your way right out of a decent dinner and you're on your own tonight because of what you said or didn't say, or, you know, Valentine's Day's this week, you may want to remember that Tuesday-ish, you know, uh, might be a wise move. Um, so the other day someone sent me this picture and here was the caption, when you're mad, but you still make him dinner, okay? <laughs> I, I don't know what symptoms you would have at the end of that dinner, but uh, you, you still did what you were supposed to do. Love with compassion. Can I just say to you tonight, if we're not careful, we gauge ourselves as it relates to how much we love others, listen to me, by the bad stuff we don't do toward them. We talked about this the other night in our Galatians series. Can I tell you that love is not just the absence of doing evil to others? It is also the presence of doing the positive, the loving thing toward them. For some of us, the reason that the guilt of others, we can't let go of it is because we put the ball all in their court. We don't ever communicate love. We don't ever convey anything that is compassionate um, toward them. Can I remind you that God sent his son while we were still sinners, right? We didn't have our act together. We, didn't, we hadn't fixed all the failings we had toward him, and God still sent his son to us. We need a positive, we need a, a, a love with initiative, one that's moving toward others instead of avoiding them at all costs. And so we need to, to, to give up the pride and move toward them in areas that God calls us to be compassionate. Uh, two things I would give you quickly on this. Number one, compassionate uh, imitation. So we need to imitate Christ in our love. We'll talk about the negative side of this in a minute, but who is the standard of what is loving and what is not loving? Um, probably in this room, there's a standard of love in your life. It's some lady, it's some guy, it's some person that to you is loving, and you let them be the ceiling of what you're willing to do with love. God here says that it's to be like Christ, and we see that uh, we are to follow his example as referenced in verse 16. We tend to try to straddle the fence. We wouldn't be Cain, right? Back in verse 12, but neither are we Christ, and we seem to be okay with that. 
at some point we have to choose. We're moving toward one or the other, and we know how it ended for Cain. We also know how it continues because of Christ, and so we must choose between these two options for which Christ is the standard. Romans chapter 5 and verse 7, for scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare die, but God commendeth his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We failed him, we failed him, we failed him, and he still moved toward us with love and compassion. Verse 17, but whoso, now he goes to the other end of the spectrum. So he talks about laying down our life, but now in verse 17, let's bring it into real time and space. But whoso hath this world's goods, seeth his brother hath need, hath need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? And so in verse 16, we have like the extreme, we're giving up our life. Now in verse 17, it's just the small things. Are we willing to be compassionate in the little things that they need of us? Instead of hoarding, we help. Instead of holding back, we freely and liberally give to them. This bowels of compassion that's referenced there has the idea of deep-seated emotional concern or affectionate sympathy. Um, I am well aware of what I want, what I like, what I dislike, what hurts me, what helps me. But often I'm not as sensitive about those things with others in my life. There's not that deep-seated abiding sensitivity and graciousness toward their needs and doing my best to minister to them. And so may we be willing to have these bowels of compassion. It's interesting, the same word that's found here that, that's translated with the bowels of compassion is found three times in the book of Philemon. And Paul, listen to me, is telling a slave owner to have bowels of compassion toward a man, a man who wronged him, stole from him, ran away from him, did wrong by him. And, and Paul says, welcome him back with bowels of compassion, bowels of compassion, bowels of compassion. And so we need that, not just toward the one who does right toward us, but the one who most deeply wrongs us. That is the spirit that brings healing and help uh, to our life. And so this shutting up of bowels is not arbitrary. The context here clearly is in reference to being wronged or slighted by a brother. We still offer to them this compassion. And as I mentioned a moment ago, we probably all have limits of what we're willing to be compassionate toward. And our family has a default position. When someone wrongs us as a family, here's what we do. And here's what we never do. And the standard is not Christ. The standard is genetic. The standard is, gen is biological. The standard is inherited from man. The standard must be the compassion of Christ. Can I encourage you to write down this statement? Probably, if not the most important, one of the most important this evening. It helps us process unresolved guilt between us and others. Here it is. Jot this down. Our unhealthy cycles of bitterness... And probably some, if not many of us in the room are at least battling this this evening, our unhealthy cycles of bitterness are always the result of processing others' guilt toward us. Our unhealthy cycles of bitterness are always the result of processing others' guilt toward us like anybody but Jesus. Our cycles of bitterness are always the result of processing others' guilt toward us like anybody besides Jesus. If anybody but Jesus is the standard of how you're willing to be generous and gracious and compassionate and forgiving, 
you will slip into and digress into bitterness. Our unhealthy cycles of bitterness are always the result of processing others' guilt toward us like anybody besides Jesus. First Peter chapter 2, verse 21 says that he suffered for us and he left us steps to follow in, right? We're to follow in his steps. If Jesus suffered what you suffered, and Jesus sat where you sat tonight, and if Jesus absorbed what you've had to absorb, and I'm not diminishing the wrong that's been done to you, would anything change? That place, the gap between where you're at and where he would be, that's the distance between you and healing. That's the distance between you and the hope, the freedom that only he can bring. Don't let anybody but Jesus be the standard of the compassion, the forgiveness, the graciousness that you offer to others. All right, look at verse 18, and we see a second compassionate profile here. He says in verse 18, My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. So compassionate imitation. We've got to be compassionate like Jesus. Number two, compassionate authenticity. It's got to be real. Compassionate authenticity. John says here, the true test of love is not what we say. Man, I love you. It's not saying it. It's doing it. It's meaning it. It's not what we say, but it's what we do. It's in our actions. It's in our uh, deeds of truth. One of the things I notice with guilt in my own life, when I'm the one that's guilty or someone else is guilty, that my natural tendency is to not let truth reign in that situation. I start believing lies. They wrong me because of X, Y, and Z, that I have no proof of that. When I've wronged somebody, I come up with all kinds of excuses and justifications. They wrong me first, and you don't understand the backstory. Um, Truth is the only way forward out of guilt. Whether it's someone else toward us or us toward someone else, truth, authentic truth is the only way forward. Somebody said this, this is so good. If you tell the truth, it, this wrong, becomes a part of your past. If you lie, it becomes a part of your future. It just goes on and on and on. Truth frees us. Truth allows us to move forward. And some of it involves the other person's choices, obviously, but compassionate authenticity. We must love in deed and in truth. And our lack of success in resolving wrong between us and others is because we lean too heavily upon talk, talk instead of walk, walk. Doing instead of just saying uh, what often we claim and know God wants us to do. Um, This is just me being transparent tonight. I used to think I was pretty good at forgiving people because if I didn't think about them long enough, I could forget even their name. Um, And that's just me being honest tonight. I'm not joking. I'm being dead serious. I thought that that was a profile of faith and obedience to Christ. And there are people that have wronged me in the past, to be honest with you, because I choose not to think about it. I can't even remember their name. That's not the spirit of the text here. It's actually to move toward them, to remember their name, and to try to somehow build a bridge back to that person. And obviously, it's a two-way street, but that's the profile of of compassion. That's the profile of Jesus Christ that we must evidence to others. And just this thought, and we'll move to our second point tonight, the next move in your relationship where others have wronged you with a sin of either commission or omission is likely not their move, but your move. A move that does not shut off love with a critical spirit, but initiates with compassion. And may God help us to move toward that and all the the redemptive healing that that brings into our hearts 
in lives. All right, the second commitment. Look, if you will, now verse 19. And hereby we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. For if our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart. Go down to verse 22. And whatsoever we ask, we receive of him. Number two, let's talk for a minute about commitment in prayer. So the first commitment we must maintain to deal with unresolved guilt between us and others is a commitment to love. Number two, a commitment uh, in our prayer. Uh, Ian got his braces off this past Thursday, and he was supposed to wait another couple of weeks, and they had an opening. Have you ever noticed how the dentist will say to you, I have an opening right now or in 12 months, okay? And so you, I guess we're doing it today, okay? And uh, so he got his braces off uh, Thursday, and, and I'm sure uh, he said he enjoy, enjoys that, the extra gap that he has now. Um, and, and Dr. Custer, who is Miss Brandy's stepdad, is the one, he's our dentist, He's a very gracious man. So what I'm about to say is of no offense to him. Okay, Miss Brandy. So just maybe mute this part when you share the, the message, the profoundness of this sermon with him. Um, I read this the other day. It said, an orthodontist is a magician. He can remove your life savings from your child's mouth. Um, and uh, Ian hasn't said thank you to me, by the way, now that I think about it. The investment, neither is Dr. Custer. But uh, it... It's interesting how much of our identity is processed with our mouth. Have you thought about that? And here's, here's, this is a very convicting question, but it's so true. We talk to everybody about the wrong that's been done to us before we get around to telling God about it. And the gap between the wrong and when we get to telling God about it, that's where a lot of really harmful thinking and patterns and reactions creep in and fester, and grow. And if we can close the gap between the wrong and when we tell God about it, that's a point we can really grow in. There's some things we can avoid that we've probably gotten into some dysfunction and and some uh, things that hurt us and harm others as a result of it. Um, We live in a very broken, hurtful world, right? Every day we're wronged and insulted. Last night I was getting Uh, I was at Mark's getting some uh, turkey and a lady was slicing it up and she said she wasn't complaining. She just said, I'm sorry, it's taking so long. The lady before you was just cursing me out because I wasn't moving quickly enough. It's just, it's everywhere. Just people picking on each other. It's everywhere. And yet we can't find out, figure out how to pray to God. Like just the brokenness should bring us to the throne of grace regularly that we talk to God about that person and that insult and that festering wound that's in our life. It it, it ought to move us to prayer, to the place where we can receive that help and that healing. Um, In Luke chapter 23, remember Jesus, this is while he's hanging on the cross, what does he do to God? Father, forgive them. What is that? It's a prayer. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He put the best spin possible. It's just ignorance as he could. And he only could do that because he was in a place and in a posture of prayer. Are we praying about the unresolved guilt between us and others? All right, a couple things quickly. Our time is almost done. Number one, pray without timidity. In verses 19 to 21, John is saying, if you will pray and let that prayer be what solidifies and steadies your relationship with the brethren, it will remove timidity um, and lack of confidence from uh, your life. And so pray without timidity. 
two things under that quickly. First of all, timid ignorance. He, he says that prayer frees us from this timid ignorance. The beginning of verse 19, and hereby we know that we are of the truth. Hereby we know that we are of the truth. And so prayer reminds us of what God is doing in and through us. It frees us to be defined not by our wounds and our failures, but by who we are in Jesus Christ. And so prayer reallocates our focus ask you this question tonight, a convicting question, at least it is for me. If your assurance of salvation, if your assurance of salvation rested only upon how much your response to being wronged by others is like God, how much assurance of salvation do you have tonight? Next to nothing on this front in our lives is why we lack the boldness of previous generations of believers. Their prayer life infused them with confidence. We're, we we're victims sometimes in areas where we should be defined more by who God is and who we are in Jesus Christ. And so the confidence comes through prayerfully coming before God on a regular basis. Number two, timid autonomy. That would be doing it on our own. Notice the end of verse 19, and shall assure our hearts before him. For if our heart condemn us, there's this sense of guilt and condemnation. For if our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart. That is a key phrase of our study tonight. Even if our own heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knoweth all things. Verse 21, beloved, if our heart condemn us not, then have we confidence toward God. And so prayer removes the timid autonomy. We have to be defined by our emotions, our moods, our feelings. No, we're defined by who God says that we are. Nothing exposes the shortcomings of trying to do life on our own like trying to deal with the wrongs of others. Have you figured that out yet? I never feel more inadequate to do the right thing than when I'm insulted, than when I'm wounded, and especially if it's on repeat. I don't have within me, in the core of my being, the ability to say and do the right thing in that moment. And so I must move toward God, and so must you. It is less about the pain they caused and more about our own pride of being confronted, our own pride being confronted, because we want to do life on our own. Why does God let us get wounded? I think there are a lot of reasons for it, but I think one of the primary reasons is to humble us. I can't have the right spirit on my own. I can't respond in the right way without his help. One author said this in relation to prayer. He said, prayer is the open admission that without Christ, we can do nothing. Prayer is turning away from ourselves to God in confidence that he will provide the help we need. Listen to this. Prayers humble us as needy and exalt God as wealthy. Prayer reminds us I need, and prayer reminds me God has everything I need. And in this area, we need him desperately, and we allow prayer to remind us of that fact on a regular basis. And so being committed to prayer alone will push back against our tendency to be disconnected from God, to try to deal with this interpersonal strife on our own, and to rest in Him, to be bold and confident in His strength. All right, lastly, look at verse 22. I love this. And whatsoever we ask, we receive of Him because we keep His commandments and do those things that are pleasing in His sight. Lastly, number two, pray with obedience. Pray with obedience. Um, I think I shared this little video once before, but this is a little boy eating out of a cocoa. You know what cocoa powder is, okay? This is a hilarious, at least I think it's funny. I, it's probably a bit sadistical or mean to kids to show this, but uh, enjoy. Okay, there's no audio. 
You see the Hershey's cocoa? <laughs> Watch. So, so wrong, isn't it? Um, how many of you would say the parent videoing that is guilty of child abuse? Okay, that might be, that might be, uh, the kid's probably, he's pro- that kid is probably having regular therapy even to this day because of, of that moment. Um, can I just say to you, there are times where we are wronged by others that we need to move towards someone. And here's, here's, the, here's the problem. The tendency, listen to me, when we're wounded, is we feel like doing nothing. And if we do feel like doing something, it's we want to do something that's wrong. This is key tonight. One of the things that God does to free us of that tendency and that trajectory is he gives us things to obey, things to do that move us toward his healing, his help, his blessing, that we often want to run the opposite uh, direction. I would give you just an example of this that applies with as it relates to our kids. Have you ever had someone try to force their kid to hug you? No, you, no, you hug him. Have you ever been the adult? Like, he doesn't need to hug me, okay? Um, I I understand the spirit of that. But there is a choice that we we own our own body, right? I think we have to be careful with that. I'm just saying there are times where if we push our kids too hard in that direction, it's reinforcing that they don't have a choice as it relates to their body, and they can be taken advantage of with that. So there are situations where a child is either because of something they know or sense they're not open to that person. You know, there are times where because of wounds and things that we have, we just want to shut everybody out. And the problem is when we do that, oftentimes we also shut God out. The God who in his presence has found fullness of joy and peace and comfort. And so what I have found has helped me, and I think what John is saying here is this, that if we will obey God, even when we're wounded, even when we're hurt, it brings us closer to him. It brings us closer to everything that he offers to us. So these couple of last points. First, obedient in the tangibles. So he talks about action in verse 22. He says, do these things. So we need to tangibly evidence our obedience to God. Um, Not just say we're obeying God, but actually doing it. If you notice that we judge others by their actions and we judge ourselves by our intentions, I was going to do that. I'll someday do that. We judge others on their actions we got to allow our own actions to be what God evaluates us based upon. So obedient tangibles. And then lastly, obedient intangibles. And he talks about this, that, that we're to have some things in our heart. Look at verse 23. This is his commandment, that we should believe, there's faith, on the name of the Son of his Son Jesus Christ, and love one another as he has given us commandments. And so obedience to him, not just with the actions, but with our heart. We believe him. We love others. Uh, in a way that evidences our faith and love for him. Our forgiveness is preceded by faith in God and love of God. It's not faith in others and love of others. It is faith in God and love of others that frees us to forgive others. And then in verse 24, as we finish, and he that keepeth his commandments dwelleth in him, or dwelling in Christ, and he in him, there's Christ's spirit, and hereby we know that he abideth in us by the spirit which he hath given us. Our forgiveness must not be fueled by obligation to man, but by obedience to God. Can I say that again? 
Our forgiveness must not be fueled by obligation to man, but obedience to God. And if we can get beyond man with all of his shortcomings and all of those in our lives that fail us, instead do the right thing because God told us to, we can get beyond these things that hold us back. Um, On your own time, just jot down this reference, Matthew chapter 5, verse 43 to 48. Matthew 5, 43 to 48. And chapter 6 and verse 12. So Matthew 5, 43 to 48. And chapter 6 of Matthew, verse 12. And in those, Christ commands us to pray for them that despitefully use us. In chapter 6 and verse 12, the Lord's Prayer, he says, Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And so prayer is a way to process the wrong that has been done to us and continues to be done to us. All right, I want to give you a couple of resources. We'll do this in each of our sessions. Um, the first book I would highly recommend is called Forgiving What You Can't Forget by Lisa Turkhurst uh, with Proverbs 31, if you're familiar with that ministry. It's a great book on dealing with wrong that you can't forget, how to process that. And she deals with in that book something when they don't even admit they're wrong and some of the ways to navigate that, certain boundaries they have to be set up. So that's a good book. And then the second one that comes back to, as I mentioned, David This is a classic called A Tale of Three Kings. I read it in Bible college, undergrad, by Gene Edwards. That's a new uh, book cover to it. I read it when it had kind of a crown on it. It's what's in my mind's eye. But the book is a great book study on how David was wronged by King Saul. He is king, and then he's wronged by his son Absalom. And how how David navigated all of that and the, the forgiveness and processing. It's a classic primer on how to forgive, how to navigate the wrongs of others, and even your own wrongs in your life. A Tale of Three Kings. So those two books I would uh, highly recommend to you. All right, last thought, and we'll pray. Um, So you would say, Pastor, okay, I hear you on the forgiveness stuff, but what about the others? What about the others that don't admit they're wrong, they've never owned it, they've never changed? Can I give you a final thought as it relates to others? I'm okay if you let others define your view of forgiveness, but here's the statement. Heal so we don't have another generation of trauma passing itself off as culture. You want to talk about other people? All right, let's talk about other people. Let's not talk about who's hurt you and wounded you. Let's talk about the others impacted by how you're navigating the wrong that's happening in your life. Either you're wrong toward others or they're wrong toward you. Others, that's fine. Let's talk about the others that you influence. And so may we not perpetuate wounds and scars and struggles to the next generation because we're unwilling to deal with guilt. This question, and we'll pray, what if the greatest obstacle to the unresolved wrong and guilt of others is not them but you? What if it is you? Not saying it is, but it might be. For not just those who wounded you, but also those who are watching you. That's the only way for us tonight to have hope. That someday we can be free of these unhealthy coping mechanisms and dysfunctional responses is to focus on our responsibilities. I can't control myself barely with God's total help and intervention. So I definitely can't change anyone else. And I found I have less hope when I'm focused on what I wish they would do and they would stop doing. And I get a fresh dose of it every time I let God put the focus on me my attitude, my outlook, my thoughts, my reactions. There's hope and healing on the other side of that focus. And so this question, and we'll pray, will you allow God to help you respond and resolve, uh, respond to and resolve the guilt of others toward you 
and you toward them with a commitment, a fresh commitment to love and a fresh commitment to prayer. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word tonight. 